Good evening. When it comes to energy prices, there is no good news to be had at all, it would seem. A consultancy overnight called Cornwall Insight, they think that energy bills will be above 2021 levels up until 2030. Others now suggesting that by the middle of next year, energy bills could be as high as £5,000 per household. So there is a massive economic crisis coming for many, many millions of people. Now, in response to all of this today, the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, the Business Secretary and the bosses of some of the big energy companies met in Number 10 Downing Street. They produced a long list of things they'd discussed but reached no conclusions whatsoever when it comes to action. Only one of the many points mentioned had anything to do with energy supply. And whilst we do have, in the very short term, a big problem with the cost of energy bills, we face the potential in January or February, which after all is not that far away, of rationing of energy or perhaps even the lights going out. And yet that didn't seem to be important enough to be discussed in number 10 today, which tells you all you need to know about the total absolute mess our energy policy has left us in today. Boris Johnson concluded saying that it is up to the next Prime Minister to make significant fiscal decisions. And my question for you at home and to debate here this evening is should the government act now? Let me know your thoughts, farage at gbnews.uk. Well, it will be up to a new Prime Minister to make those decisions, but here's the problem the Conservatives face, in my opinion. By the time Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak is in number 10 Downing Street, and that'll be the 6th of September, and they've got together and designed the budget and announced what it's going to be and whatever reliefs there are going to be for households or for those on benefits or however they're going to do it, by then, many people will already have on their mats bills they can't afford to pay. And there is a growing group of people out there, I think much of it, being egged on by Marxists and anarchists, but a growing number of people out there saying simply, we will not pay our bills. We're facing potentially a very serious situation. So it seems to me to have a big meeting on the 11th of August and conclude we have to wait until at least the 6th of September to hear anything simply isn't good enough. That is my view. Now, last week I gave you some figures from Zip Zero, the rewards-based app, and I'm joined by its co-founder today, Mohsin Rashid. We talked to our audience last week. Just quickly, how many households in this country by the end of this year are going to be in financial difficulty? So, <clears throat> given where we are in the year, Nigel, so far, already 17% of households have been delinquent with utility bills. Approximately 53% believe they will be delinquent by the end of the year. And just to pick up on where you started, mm. in October 21, the average bill was £1,400 a year. By January 23, that could be £4,300. That's a threefold increase. So it's ironic to be talking about this on one of the warmest days of the year. But as you said, winter is, winter is coming and mm. there's a lack of foresight, there's a lack of planning, and there seems to be a lack of concern. When you see this debate playing out between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, and hey, it's being debated you know, every day. We're seeing it on our screens, screeds of newspaper yep. uh, columns on this. Um, what do you see from those candidates in terms of how they might deal with this problem? I see absolutely nothing, to be honest. Uh, none of them has a concrete plan or a strategy. And as you said, 
if they don't have a plan now, by the time they get into Downing Street, we're going to be further into crisis and it'll be too late to do anything. What we want to see is more action from, there's clearly a vacuum of power at the top, but there is a lot more local government can do. We would like to work collaboratively with government, utilities, retailers and brands to try and create a solution to help households alleviate this long, this cost of living crisis. The problem with most of the political support schemes are they're very short term. We need to think about this in a more strategic, long-term, sustainable economic way. I mean, it could be that in two or three years' time, energy prices are back where they were, the problems of Russia are over, we might be producing lots of our own gas, ha-ha. Um, but looking to October, November, December, what do you think needs to happen? I think, and this is our personal perspective, yep. because this is a societal problem. We are all in this together. There is no independent solution other than the government throwing money at it, which I don't think they want to do. What we want to do is bring together... But they're, all... going to be, they're going to be forced to, aren't they? They may be. I'm not a, you know, I can't tell the future. I don't know how much money the government will have to spend. But we think there is a more collaborative approach to trying to deal with this problem. As I said, this is a wider mm. problem. We need to bring together all the key stakeholders, which is what we're trying to do. We want to create a coalition of brands, retailers, utility companies, local governments, to try and essentially redistribute money which is already in the system. There's a huge amount of excess in the ecosystem that we think could be better spent. Do you mean profits in private companies? I, I don't. What I am talking about is today, £27 billion is spent on digital advertising. All of that money, unfortunately, goes straight into the pockets of big tech. And as you know, Nigel, the way big tech is structured, they pay very little tax. None of that money goes into the pockets of the consumer or the economy. What we want to do is essentially put that money where we feel it belongs, in the pockets of the consumer. Ultimately, ultimately, ultimately we are going to have to help people out with their bills, aren't we? We are. And we think we, we have a partial solution to that. But we need to find a way to bring everyone together into a coalition to help support what we're doing. Okay. Well, Mosin Rashid, I have to say I found your research last week that you produced uh, more concerning and more worrying than I realised the situation was. And I thank you for coming in to Thanks the studio. Thanks very much, Nigel. Thank you. Well, back to that Tory leadership debate. And yes, of course, tax and spend. That's how the whole thing began. But it now really is beginning to focus ever more on the upcoming energy problem that families will face this autumn. Rishi Sunak says, look, I've already given money to each household and I'm prepared to give more. Liz Truss appeared last night on GB News with that debate when she was confronted to be saying, I'll cut taxes and that'll leave people in a better position to pay their bills. Now she's saying, well, actually, I'm not against big handouts either. And I just wonder, as I'm joined by William Atkinson, assistant editor of Conservative Home, I just wonder... Did the Conservative Party realise how much trouble they could be in with this? No, I don't think they do, Nigel. I mean, frankly, I think whoever ends up winning this contest, we can have a lovely month where we debate what their lovely tax plans will be and how many billions we're going to cut and which particular taxes they're going to cut and enjoy having a sort of little free market uh, think tank fantasy session. But the fact is, the sort of rises in people's bills we're going to be seeing over the next few months, you know, by up to over £4,000 by the early months of next year, the prediction now is that we're going to require an intervention on the level of that that was required during the COVID pandemic. I mean, frankly, if people are struggling to pay a £50, £100, £150 increase now, what the hell are they going to do when their bills go up by £1,000? And this is my point. 
William, is that it's the 11th of August and the ballot papers have been out for some time. I presume a lot of people have voted amongst the Conservative Party members. We've had the Chancellor, the Business Secretary, the Prime Minister, the Energy Bosses in Number 10 today. And Boris says, oh, just wait till the next person comes along. They'll have to make the decision. By the time they've put together a budget, people will have bills on their mats that millions can't pay. I mean, electorally, this is catastrophic. Haven't they got to try and do something sooner? Well, I would say that they should. But the problem is, is that, you know, we are supporters at Conservative Home of the members having a say over who the next Tory leader is. But frankly, if the Prime Minister is simply going to say, oh, I can't do anything for the next month or so, I'm going to go and play with some jets rather than actually delivering for the British people, which is what he was, after all, elected to do, and he's going to leave it for his success. So this problem is only going to escalate. And I think, frankly, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak might enjoy spending a month chucking barbs at each other. But I think the, probably the first time and only time in my life I will say this, Gordon Brown was onto something when he said they should probably sit down with the Prime Minister and discuss what can be done yeah, over I, the next month. Yeah, I mean, I have to say the fact that he didn't put any of the problems down to net zero, etc., I didn't applaud. But now on Conservative Home today, Clive Moffat, and he, of course, was formerly chairman of the UK Energy Security Group, has written a piece on Con Home, your site today, saying to prevent the lights going out this winter, the government must take drastic action. And yet... I've heard nothing, really, about supply from today's meeting. One little paragraph about long-term investing in the North Sea. And from Sunak and Truss, again, very, very little. It's been quite a shock to people to learn how much electricity we import from France, Norway. You know, how, how we are not energy independent in any way at all. I put it to you that actually much of this mess we're in, after 12 years of Tory rule, is there has been... A series of governments and ministers who've been reactive to events with no long-term planning, desperate to go green, that's led us to where we are. Well, look, I entirely agree with you on that, Nigel, especially because I was the one who actually wrote that headline for Clive Moffat's piece earlier, so it kind of sums up my you thinking did the as well. Right, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but no, so we've been a net energy importer yeah. for about 18 years. Um, and that obviously takes the tail end of the last Labour government, but the entirety as well of the four, now we're on to, Tory governments that we've had since 2010. And frankly, this government and its predecessors have been frankly, just too scared of Tory MPs, of Tory backbenchers, etc., to actually deliver these sort of huge changes in our energy makeup we require. Look, I'm not always the biggest fan of the French, but I would back a sort of big French sort of, what's it, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing style push for nuclear um, just to try and actually break, build up our domestic supply as quickly as possible. I think fracking, obviously we should have been doing fracking at least a decade ago. But your part, it's your party that weren't doing it. Do you believe, do you believe that either of these two candidates has the strength and the vision to be not just reactive in number 10, but to actually strike out with some bold initiatives? Well, look, I've met both of them. I've interviewed both of them. I like both of them as people, but I don't think they will be able to. Frankly, if a man with the political talents and all the flaws of Boris Johnson can waste an 80-seat majority, as he has done over the last three years, because he was subsumed by events, I imagine with the sort of interest rates, the sort of inflation, the sort of energy bills we're looking at only in the next few months, 
these are going to be two potential Tory leaders who will also be overcome by events. And that's why, as I said at the start, you know, we can have a month where they can debate whatever think tank pie-in-the-sky policy they would like to see, but they're not actually going to be able to deliver anything. Leave aside whether they've actually got the legitimacy to do so because it wasn't in the manifesto they were elected on in 2019. They simply won't have the political bandwidth, and we're going to have, and I'm very sorry to all of your viewers to say this, we're going to have another two years of government lurching from crisis to crisis until we actually are able to deal with the fundamental flaws in the Whitehall machine and actually try and deliver the fundamental changes in the way this country is governed that we require that we don't get these endless crises as we're seeing at the moment. William Atkinson, I can't tell you how refreshing it is to hear a Conservative who realises what an absolute mess the whole thing is. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. So, a big energy summit. Today, in number 10, no conclusions drawn. No, the Prime Minister says, wait for the next Prime Minister to deal with the problem. I wonder, are they leaving things just too late? Should they be acting now? I asked your views. I've got some of them. Wesley says, perhaps he is right, even if he is useless. It's up to the next PM to fully sort out the economy that they have ruined or face turmoil at the next general election, as well as mass protests and strikes. You know, Wesley, my worry is if this campaign not to pay energy bills at all takes off, just think what a mess the country is going to be in. We need leadership. This vacuum is too long, given the severity of price rises houses are facing. Another viewer says he was desperate to stay in office and was allowed that grace, so he absolutely should be leading the country right now. Bob says, let's get fracking. There's enough shale gas to make Britain an exporter and reduce our energy bills and dependence. Bob, I'm with you 100%. Paul says there has been a successive failure in governments over the years to deal with the energy issues in this country, hence why the cost of energy in France has only gone up by a few pounds compared to our own eye-watering increase. To be accurate, Paul, what President Macron has done is he has capped rises in gas and in electricity to 4% in 2022, and the government is picking up the rest of the bill. It's a very, very, very big bill. And finally, Wayne says, yes, Boris Johnson should act now. These events are going to be catastrophic if intervention is not implemented immediately. And as I said earlier, you know, we're talking here very much about price, and that's vital. There is no debate about supply. We're headed towards a situation where the lights will go out in this country. I've been telling you this on this show for month after month, and I'm not wrong. And when it does, please, please make sure you point the finger at both the Conservative and Labour parties whose desire to build as many wind turbines as they possibly could doesn't serve us when the wind doesn't blow. Now, we talked briefly about the raid on Mar-a-Lago, the astonishing raid on Mar-a-Lago. And what's been interesting has been the commentary around it. Richard Littlejohn, that famous columnist in the Daily Mail yesterday, said, this is how democracy dies. Maybe, or maybe just maybe, even how civil war begins. Others, of course, have praised the raid, a series of democratic congressmen and women. And, of course, Nancy Pelosi, well, what would you expect? President Trump is right when he compared this to Watergate, to have a warrant, 
You need justification. But what's interesting is actually you've got people like the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, saying, you know, the Department of Justice must immediately explain what they've done. And I don't see the level of crowing in the New York Times or on CNN that I would have expected to have seen. I think they're worried they may have blundered. Now, after that, Trump faced further legal difficulties. To go through this, I'm joined, by, of course, by his former spokesman and CEO of social media, performer Getter, Jason Miller. Can you believe this happened? No, this is the most ridiculous abuse of justice that I've seen in my entire lifetime. In fact, never before have we had a former president have his home raided by U.S. law enforcement. And here's the thing. In the short term, this has led to a boost for President Trump. New polling out today from Morning Consult, as well as Politico, shows Trump going up four points with Republicans and the second place contender for hypothetical 2024 yeah. matchup dropping six. So a 10 point swing. So as a Trump partisan, I like the fact that it's boosted him. This is terrible for democracy. This is how we become Venezuela, Cuba, the CCP. This is such a ridiculous uh, just destruction the of Democrats our institutions. Would say, the Democrats would say that Trump organized a coup on the 6th of January to overturn the result of a democratic election, and therefore they were in their right to seek a warrant. And, of course, the Attorney General you know, you know, did apply for this warrant, although, interestingly, the White House now say they had nothing to do with it, which doesn't quite pass the credibility test. But that's the charge. The charge is there was a plot, a conspiracy, and those papers were going to be on Donald Trump's coffee table in Mar-a-Lago. So here's what a lot of folks in the UK might not realize, is that Trump's obviously being investigated by the January 6th committee. You have everything that happened on that day. This raid, though, was specific to the National Archives yep. and with returning records. President Trump had previously returned 15 boxes of things that were brought to Mar-a-Lago that, quite frankly, probably shouldn't have been. But what was in those? Things like his letter from President Obama, his letter from Kim Jong-un. This was not, say, our list of top spies or where the Iranians are building their uranium enrichment facilities. These are things such as letters. Now, what's in the 10 boxes they supposedly took away? I don't know that. I'd have insight into that. But to your point about they better have some real proof, mm. I tell you, I speak with the big heavy hitters at the New York <clears throat> Times, the Washington Post, all the big outlets, even all the mainstream lefty journalists say they better have something good or they're going to have hell to pay. Because if he has taken things from the White House that were supposed to be left, that would disbar him from standing again, as I understand American law. Well, um, lawyers are split on that one, and they say that the law that says that there could be a, a potential disbarment, that's a statute as opposed to the Constitution, our U.S. Constitution, laying out the very clear terms, and they say that would override a statute. But here's the point. When you go to what actually was there, we don't know. And supposedly this came from a tip. So we have no idea what this speculation is. If this turns out to just be more correspondence, more letters, and they raided his house with the proverbial jackbooted thugs, there's going to be a real problem. Now, the timing of this was no coincidence because, of course, he was in, he was in New York pleading the Fifth Amendment, you know, claiming his right to silence over an investigation into you know, his own company, the Trump company. Um, he's facing a sort of whole series, isn't he, of legal suits in America? Well, it is, and I had name-checked a few of them. You brought up, obviously, the New York Attorney General uh, yeah. investigation yeah. into his companies. Now, interestingly here is keep in mind, we've gone through so much over the last few years with Trump. We went through Jim Comey and McCabe and Russia and Mueller, impeachment one, impeachment two. In Trump world, we just call this Thursday. There's more of these continually coming. 
Interestingly enough, when the New York DA was looking into President Trump's business dealings and his background, they decided not to press charges. Keep in mind, when we had the Russia investigation, that turned out to be a complete hoax. I remember. So every day, there's some breaking Chiron, breaking news Chiron on CNN saying this might be the thing that sends President Trump to jail. But guess what? It always ends up being nothing. And so we're conditioned a bit to think that, uh-oh, what's the latest swirl? But so far, I think they've bit off more than they can chew on this one. Yeah, you may be right. Jason Miller, former spokesman Donald Trump and boss of Getter. Thank you very much indeed. Now, we've been leading the way on this programme with Albanian TikTok videos. Now, if you said that to me a month ago, I wouldn't have believed you. But of course, we showed those videos advertising for people to come across the English Channel, summer sales and all the rest of it. And it's led me into a whole series of investigations. Last night, I asked you, the audience, to get in touch, farage at gbnews.uk, if you'd seen, springing up in the last year or two, Turkish barbers, who weren't actually Turkish barbers, but Albanian. Well, hundreds of you, and I mean hundreds of you, have been in touch and just chatting to people all over the country. There are hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe thousands of Turkish barbers shops that have sprung up and appear to do very little business. I wonder why that might be. Well, I think you know where I'm heading with this. Well, the good news is that today we have seen a further 20 Albanian criminals that have been deported back to Albania. That makes it 1,000 over the course of the last year, but there's still 1,500 in our prisons. But just have a look at these two TikTok videos encouraging people to pay the traffic of the fare to come to the United Kingdom. So there we are. There we are. Come here. There's bags of cash to be made by everybody. And I think we know what happens to that cash, don't we? But now we learn that a significant number of those who come across the English Channel and are Albanian now are finding a method by which they can stay. They are using the Modern Slavery Act of 2015 to say that they were trafficked into this country. I mean, bear in mind, Albania is a NATO member. Albania is a prospective EU member. Albania is a place many Brits go on holiday. And when they're in the boats crossing the channel, they all look pretty happy to me. But that's what they're claiming. Well, let's try and unpick this. Let's try and understand this legally. And I'm joined by Fadi Farhat, senior legal consultant at Gubelnkine and Donian Lawyers. Now, your speciality, immigration, human rights law, you've worked with government figures over the years, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, I've been incredibly critical of ECHR and its incorporation into UK law. But for the purposes of this conversation, my opinion is irrelevant. I want to help the audience understand how it is that Albanians who've illegally entered Britain from a country that is deemed to be a safe country, a NATO member, a NATO ally, they use the Modern Slavery Act of 2015, which you know, we're all sure was legislation passed with best intentions. How linked is that legislation to the European Convention on Human Rights and indeed the Human Rights Act? Thank you, Nigel. Well, um, in part, it 
implements some of the provisions of the ECHR. The ECHR contains several articles uh, providing broad rights uh, for people, for everybody, immigrants and non-immigrants. Um, Article 4, for example, um, provides a prohibition um, on slavery and forced labour. The Modern uh, Slavery Act of 2015 mm. um, provides provisions that implement that article in part into domestic law, yeah. um, but also provides a mechanism for determining and ascertaining whether one is a victim of trafficking. So there's a, a procedure in the Act where there's a fact-finding exercise to determine whether one is a uh, victim of trafficking. And if the determination is that a person is a victim uh, of uh, trafficking uh, or slavery, uh, then that may be the basis for a, a human rights or protection claim uh, yes. to stay in the UK yes. and if in the, that context. And if the British courts didn't agree, they could go to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Um, so there is a, an appeals process, and there is an appeals process domestically, um, in theory all the way up to the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court if need be. Uh, once everything's exhausted, then uh, there, 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 there may be a potential pathway to the Strasbourg Court, yes. That, again, we come back to this, because look, you know, the Rwanda policy, and I know you know a lot about this and, and, and what the government was trying to do, I mean, in the end... You know, at 10 o'clock at night, some nameless judge in Strasbourg, you know, makes the whole thing shudder to a halt and makes us reconsider everything. Uh, I mean, is there still, in your profession, the legal profession, and in Whitehall, is there still this belief that we have to stick to ECHR in Brexit Britain? I suppose there is, in the sense that uh, we've heard Liz uh, Truss and Rishi Sunak in recent debates talk about... Uh, sorting this out and sorting the problem and making the Rwanda policy work. And um, there's been little snippets about withdrawing from the ECHR or reconsidering well, our position. Yeah. Um, ish. Ish. Yeah. But uh, the fact is we've recently had a consultation on the Human Rights Act, the 1998 Human Rights Act, uh, which is our implementation of the ECHR. That consultation specifically says we have an ongoing commitment to remain in the ECHR, to remain in the Council of Europe. So that consultation is there. So if you're going to tinker back with that, then that already renders the consultation perhaps unlawful because you have to start the whole process again because all the answers and yeah. input to that consultation is based on the premise that we will remain in the ECHR. Uh, moreover, for example, in our recent um, EU-UK um, uh, trade agreement and cooperation agreement, that also re reaffirms the commitment to the ECHR. So it doesn't seem that there's any political will for that to change. it's written into the devolution settlements and it's everywhere. It's, it's written it's, right the way through the, it's, it's the system. It's in, intertwined it? into our sort of legal and political landscape, yes. All right, well, a final thought, important one, though. Because both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss say they support the Rwanda policy and they'll look to Rwanda and other locations. Can the Rwanda policy work all the while we're part of ECHR? Perhaps not, uh, because both have said that they want to make the Rwanda policy, policy work. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? If it means getting it off the ground... That's one thing. If it means sustaining the policy, that's an entire different ball game altogether. Mm. And even if you can get it off the ground, what will happen is, in, as the data is collected, years down the line, months down the line, uh, there'll be individual challenges on a case-by-case -case basis because you'll have the data to um, ascertain trends. Is Rwanda um, discriminating against a particular group, a particular religion? Is it discriminating against, for example, fellow Africans who are claiming yeah. asylum? So once you have the individual snippets of data, you can have um, a certain sort of cluster uh, claimed against the policy. And if that eventually crumbles then the entire framework will crumble pursuant to that.
Fadi Farhat, thank you very much for joining me here at GB News. And there you are, you see, I don't make it up as I go along. Actually, we are completely bound by ECHR. We are not in control of our borders or of deportation. And I, I just think that unless Truss or Sunak in number 10 can deal with this issue, along with all the other problems they face, they will be obliterated at the next election. It's that time of the day. Yes, it really is. It's Talking Heinz. I'm joined by Anthony Malone. Anthony, welcome to the studio. Very good to see you. Thank you for having me, Nigel. Now, 31 years. 31 years, starting off as a para. Yeah. And going on to be bodyguard and working as a CIA asset and basically going from soldiering to being involved, really, in the war on terror. Pretty much so, yeah. Um, wasn't supposed to happen the way, obviously, it, 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 it did. Life but never does, though, does it, really? Exactly, <laughs> which is good. So <laughs> I've had an interesting life. I've had a very colourful life. Um, served in the parachute regiment. Yeah. I'm a fifth-generation soldier. So in, in our family, it's, it's not a case of a job. We take it as a re responsibility, and we're, we're all patriots. Yeah. So we are proud to serve uh, Queen and country. And how is it you got involved in this sort of... I mean, that, that, that graduation from, from soldiering into in basically intelligence work and trying... I mean, from what I can see of much of what you've done over the years, working with teams to try and foil terrorist attempts. Yeah, well, obviously, I took it quite personally that 28 of my friends who were serving our forces were killed. Um, a lot of them were killed by al-Qaeda. So to me, it wasn't a job, it was a responsibility. And I thought if I could help in some way, that I actually, I actually would. And for many, many years, I worked 24 hours a day just on trying to help the best way that I actually could. I became a embedded combat photographer, 101st Airborne, in Iraq, 2002-2003, where I met David Petraeus and yep. I met other, other um, individuals who worked for American intelligence. I wasn't going to become anything to do with this, but I'd done a couple of things because I had unusual access at that time, and I was always out on the ground. So I used to just pass information on, not thinking any, any, anything else of that. But some of that information turned out to be very good information. Um, and then that actually helped to stop uh, attacks and it helped to save a lot of lives as well. What was it like working with the Americans, the 101st Airborne? I thought it was great. Um, I'm, I'm British Airborne, served in a parachute regiment yep. myself yep. and working with my Airborne brothers, it was great. It was absolutely it was brilliant and it was nice to be able to make a d difference as well. Do you think even today people really understand the threat that ISIS poses the Western world? My personal opinion, no. Um, everyone hears about the attacks that happen. The British public don't get to hear about the incredible work that British intelligence, the, uh, the government do, and the Americans as well. So 99% of everything that happens, it's kept quiet. And people don't is ever that, get to hear. By this, do you mean the foiling of attacks? Yeah, the foiling of attacks. Um, a lot of it is kept quite for good reason, obviously yeah. for intelligence reasons. But the public don't get to hear about the successes. They only get to hear about the failures when something happens. And they've got to re remember there is 
a real threat against us with ISIS and obviously Al-Qaeda as, as, as well on that one. So, yeah, in, in my opinion... So would you so say, I mean, because every time there's an attack, and mercifully there have been few recently, but, it, yeah. but whenever we see attacks, you know, the London Bridge attack, whatever it is, and we see so-and-so was known to the authorities, yeah. and, of course, the tabloids all scream, and we all say that British intelligence is failing completely. But you're giving me a different perspective here. Yeah, I'm giving my personal perspective, which is my personal yeah. perspective. The work that the intelligence services do is incredible. Um, they work in the shadows and they keep the country safe. But as soon as something bad happens, the press j jump on it. What they've got to realise is, yeah, one bad thing has happened. What about the hundreds of attacks that have actually been stopped, but no-one can report on that because it's not... Yeah. Spoken about. I guess one of the important things, I'm guessing, Anthony, is to foil attacks, you have to do intelligence, you have to follow people, you have to study their online activity and all of those yeah. things. One of my concerns, you may, you, you, you may think it's small beer in a talking pipes context, but one of my concerns is large numbers of young men crossing the English Channel. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that the, quite a lot of them who'd, who'd absconded, we kept no records for whatsoever. That is a potential threat to us, isn't it? In my opinion, yes, that is a threat, because we have no way of knowing who these people who are coming over the channel are. There is a lot of men of fighting age mm. that have come into the country from Afghanistan, from Iraq and Syria. And I think that needs to be looked into a lot more, because it's only a matter of when, not if, some of these people coming in the country Ill Ill illegally yeah. will be involved in organised crime or will be involved in a terrorist strike against no, this well, that's country. My, that's my great fear. You've had a very long career. You've written about it before. You've lectured on it. You've talked about it. But what's happened to you in the last year is pretty astonishing by any standards. You're about to publish a book in a few weeks' time, Hostage Evacuation. This is all about what happened in Afghanistan a year ago. Actually, what was Afghanistan like before Joe Biden announced American withdrawal? Afghanistan has is, is got a long history. It's always been a volatile country, and I think it always will be. People need to read the history to understand the country now and what may be ha happening over there as, as well. The Americans, when they pulled out instantly mm. it caused a problem for every western country because including the united kingdom because we were scrambling to get as many people out as what we could and you were involved in that operation i was retired just before the evacuation yeah i, I was out of all military work i was doing my veteran work helping almost veterans so i was not involved in anything internationally but i started receiving before the fall of Kabul, I was receiving phone calls and satellite phone calls from colonels, brigadier generals over in Afghanistan. And they were with the Afghan army, Afghan intelligence services, asking me, could I help get them and their children out of the country? Now, I was astonished at this because these are people who are high-ranking officers here that should not have been left in that situation. Now, I actually know these people well. These people are my friends and their children. I know their children. So I wasn't going to leave them to be either killed or executed by a element or extremist element over there. So I made the decision after speaking to my fiance 
that I would go out to Afghanistan and I would help to e e evacuate as many people as what we could. Uh, happy to say that we, we managed to get to safety or get out of Afghanistan over 400 families, yeah. including vulnerable women and children as well. But then, at some point, the papers that you need to move around the place are deemed not to be right, and you're taken captive. Yes, it was an uh, un unusual, unusual situation, this, because we had uh, our British well, our passports, we had, a, we had an entry stamp in our passport, yep. which means we entered the country completely cleanly. We had a letter from the Chambers of Commerce that, that, that stated why we were actually in Afghanistan as well. And we were done everything as cleanly as what we could. We were approached one afternoon by a group of Taliban uh, who were all, all armed. We weren't, we weren't arrested or anything. There wasn't any gunfights or anything like that. We were politely asked what we were doing. We said we were looking at a house to actually rent, myself and my colleague. Then we ended up going to answer some questions at NDS headquarters, which is the head of Afghan intelligence. We said, there's not a problem. We will come with you. Our papers are real. Our passport's real. We expect to maybe be there two hours. Yeah. where they confirmed our papers. It ended up that we were there 190 days in a Taliban underground interrogations centre. Yeah. And obviously this was an incredible shock. How did you cope? Mentally, I just thought this will sort itself out. I was given, for, for the first couple of months, I was given quite a hard time because the Taliban interrogator turned out to be a young guy from the South of Afghanistan, and he had a personal grudge and grievance against the British Army. So he had had a run-in with them years yeah. before. <clears throat> I got the backlash of that. So I was beaten uh, mm. on multiple occasions quite badly. Did your previous training help you through all of this? A little bit to an ex, 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 extent, but I just tried to stay as positive. And there was another five British nationals who were with me as well, yeah. and one American. Um, I just, everyone who, who I spoke to, I just said, what you do now and how you act now will be remembered when you get out of here. Mm. So I said, hold your head up high, you are British. A lot of us in here are veterans, so you've got to keep it together in here right now. So however bad things are, you've got to keep it together. Yeah, because I thought we can't give the Taliban the satisfaction of knowing they've bro broken any of us. So as far as I was concerned, we just, even on your birthday, you hold your head up high and you, you act accordingly. And you spent some time in solitary? I spent 70 days in solitary confinement. That's got to be really hard. It was difficult, but they put me in solitary so then my external injuries would, would, would actually heal. Um, so then it wouldn't look as bad for them at that, at that point in time. It was, it was difficult. It was a challenging situation. I stayed focused. I was able to talk to the other British nationals through the little hole that, that we had in the door. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I've been through an hour time. Don't, 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 don't worry about it. We will get out at some point in time. I didn't know that at this time, but I was trying to keep the guys as motivated as what we could. Was there a time where I thought I'd be taken outside and shot in the head? Yes, hell yeah, I was. But I thought, I'm not going to give them the satisfaction. And in a situation like that, there's no point in worrying about it. Because if they're going to execute you, they're going to execute you. There's nothing you can do about it. But I thought, you can either curl up in the corner and cry, or you roll up your sleeve, stay positive, and you crack on with it. 
I chose to roll up my, my, my uh, sleeves and crack on. Bulldog spirit. Exactly. That's what I'm talking is. I, mean, I admire yeah. it. So anyway, but it wasn't until the end of June this year. Yeah, the tw 20th of June. So you've only been out for a few weeks. I have, yeah. yeah. And after that, what's it like coming back home? Surreal. Um, but brilliant to come back to the United Kingdom. Yep. What I noticed on the plane that was coming in, everything was green. It was brilliant. Uh, that's before the drought Beautiful. started. <laughs> that's before the drought started, yeah. <laughs> but it's nice to come here and you can walk down the street yeah. and there's no issues. There's no... You, you don't feel as if there's something that's going to happen. There's a, there's a bit of an uneasy feeling in Kabul. Um, you never really know yeah. what's going to happen. And there's a underlying current of violence there as well. So have you adjusted back quickly, easily? I would say to an extent, yes, but I'm, I'm very fortunate. Um, I've got a family. Yeah. So my family keep me keep my feet on the ground. I'm yep. well grounded as well. Yep. And I've told the, the, the other British nationals who were hostages, take your time. I said, it'll take you a couple of months to get back into this. I said, use the experience. Turn a negative into a positive. You've got to do that. So I said, don't dwell on all this. Because to be kept locked underground for 23 and a half hours a day for six months, yeah, yeah. it can play with your head. I'm sure it can. Mm. Well, it's not going to play with yours, is it? No. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell you, Anthony Malone, you're a tough old cookie. You really are. Thank you, very much, Thank you for joining me Thank you on Talking Pints. Thank you very much. Well, wasn't that wasn't that refreshing in a modern world where everybody moans about everything? Uh, there was a real toughie there in Anthony, been through a really hell of an experience, and hey, he's back living life. Bulldog spirit, we need a bit more of it. Now, it is time for Barrage the Farage. You send your questions in. Pauline asks me, what's the legacy of Boris Johnson's government? Mine is over-promised, under-delivered. He will have some legacies, but we did actually get Brexit. We left the European Union. We didn't do it, anything like ultimately, as well as we should have done, but we did. He'll get the credit for that. The vaccine rollout. We proved by being Brexit Britain we could make quick decisions and get things done. He'll get praise for that. And in foreign policy, well, whether you agree with the level of support Johnson has given to Zelensky in Ukraine or not, the fact is he did take a lead. So there are things there that you can call positives, but the historical legacy of Boris Johnson, what people will say in years to come, is what a waste. An 80-seat majority, a huge level of person, a personal popularity, Brexit about to be delivered, a country crying out for radical change and reform and a new government, and what did they get? They got the Oxbridge set. They got the Eaton set. They got the rich people from, from, from Richmond uh, telling us we must build lots and lots of wind turbines. Well, look where that went. The legacy historically will be, yes, he was the Prime Minister who oversaw Brexit, but actually it all finished up as a terrible, terrible waste. Dorothy asks me, should we follow France and cap fuel prices, say at January's rates, and get the government to pay the difference and also ensure providers are not overcharging? You know, I mean, if Boris Johnson's legacy is one of waste, Theresa May's legacy is one of the most disastrous decisions almost ever seen by a British Prime Minister. She introduced the price cap. What is the point of a retail price cap 
if you can't control the wholesale price. I mean, it's an absolute nonsense. What the French are doing is they're capping. Yes, they are capping, but they're going to subsidise the difference between the two. It's a very statist way of doing things. Here, what are we going to do? I sense, I, I tell you what I sense. I sense helicopter money. I sense they will give every household a thousand quid, fifteen hundred quid to get people through this crisis. Every other solution that really presents itself is so mired in complexity and so difficult through benefits or whatever else it may be to put in time. Helicopter money is what they'll do, even if they won't tell you that right now. Now, look, I'm done. I'm over for the week. That's it. Finito. I will see you on Monday evening at 7 p.m.